0: Hi, this is the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast and I'm your host Renee Teat. Today we're chatting with computational biologist, PhD candidate, and author Sebastian Roshka about his book and about some machine learning research that could provide an interesting solution to the problem of the invasive fish species called sea lampreys that are causing problems in the Great Lakes. I wanted to make sure to tell any new listeners that this episode gets a little more technical and is a little longer than most, and as usual, I included reference materials for some of the terminology used in the discussion in the show notes for episode 8 on becomingadatascientist.com. I hope this episode is especially useful for people in research science programs that are interested in transitioning into data science, as I'm learning that it's a pretty common direction of entry into this field. And I think Sebastian's book, Python Machine Learning, would be a good one for scientists to learn from. After the interview, he'll join us again to talk about evaluation metrics for a Data Science Learning Club activity. But first, let's talk to Sebastian Roshka about how he became a data scientist. Okay, hi, Sebastian.
1: Yeah, hi, René. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. I'm really looking forward to our little interview today.
0: Great, me too. I'm going to start off with the same question that I ask everybody. Do you consider yourself a data scientist?
1: Okay, um if I yeah, I would say I I feel the um kind of necessity here to yeah, I'm disambiguate the term a little bit, because I think uh, the term data scientist is used um, kind of everywhere now. It covers so many different um, yeah activities uh, that a scientist is doing nowadays. But I would say, yeah, I am a data scientist, a computational biologist who happens to work with biological data, where I do predictions, uh, predictive modeling, um, data engineering, visualization, communication to my collaborators. And I think, yeah, data scientists uh, require a lot of um, yeah, programming skills. And, you know, a data scientist has to know his or her tools and also the statistical background. Uh, does have a, you need to have a statistical background, um, a little bit about probability theory, machine learning, maybe linear algebra and math. And I think, yeah, I am somewhere in this kind of um, <laughs> intersection of different fields where I um, yeah, solve biological problems at the moment. And yeah, I would say I'm a data scientist then. Okay,
0: Yeah, it's definitely a spectrum. So you mentioned you're doing computational biology. Tell us um, what your current position is and where you're doing that.
1: So currently I'm still a PhD candidate, so it may take me a, lot of, a little bit of um, time to wrap this up, maybe uh, two, three, four months, uh, who knows. But uh, I think I'm on a good way to finish it up and then, yeah, let's see where what the future brings, maybe academia or industry. But yeah, right now I'm a PhD candidate who um, is collaborating with a lot of biologists, so I'm more the computational guy, more the machine learning guy, and I work on, yeah, several data science related problems like, um, uh, yeah, large scale drug discovery, developing novel algorithms in the field of, um, you know, like um, molecular docking and uh, things like that. And I'm also a system administrator. So um, our old system administrator um, left this, yeah, or passed on this burden to me uh, last summer mm-hmm. or so. So since then, I'm also, yeah keeping the servers yeah, alive so and running bit, and, yeah. yeah and also i'm uh, supervising to uh, undergrad students at the moment which is uh, actually pretty nice because you get to um yeah teach people or the next generation i would say but on the other hand they also can help you a lot in terms of uh, helping you with the analysis because i'm currently the only grad student in my lab and there's a lot of things uh, there are a lot of things to be done and i have maybe yeah, five to ten projects right now and i'm always happy if someone if i can teach someone something and then the person can just help me to get this analysis done in time. And yeah, I'm grateful for that, that I get to work with uh, nice people there too. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's great. And we'll get back to your um, current um, PhD stuff a little bit later, but first I want to go back in time. So um, when you were a kid, which I understand was in Germany, were there Mm -hmm. any indications like before high school that you'd be into this stuff or eventually even write a book about it?
1: Um, how can I say that so I have to admit in high school I wasn't maybe uh, that much into computer science so I uh, we had um, yeah different uh, courses from the broad field of science like biology um, physics chemistry and uh, also we had a computer science class uh, which was actually the most exciting one but also I have to admit um, we played a lot of video games there
0: <laughs> no um, but
1: so the thing is I was really fascinated in uh, I was I was really into biology because it was not maybe the field itself, it was the teacher. So the teacher made the whole difference. Basically, our math teacher was a very boring person and our biology teacher was a really uh, interesting person. He was really, really a good teacher. And that fascinated me, which caused me maybe going more towards the biology direction there. And um, yeah, math, I was never bad at it. I was actually pretty good at it. But the thing was, um, I was lacking the feel for why is this important? Why should I learn about certain things? And how how does it help me? Or why why should it fascinate me? And um, I was just good at math because for the sake of getting good grades. But biology was more like, hey, this is how life works. This is really interesting. This is how my body works. It is how the biochemistry my body works. And there was so much more interesting. And I was also really into physics back then. Because also physics was really like explaining the world to me, basically, and um, yeah, these two topics like physics and biology were, yeah, my most favorite topics I would say. And later in um, yeah, my undergrad, I basically tried to focus more on them. And then to solve problems in physics and biology, I went back to computer science and math because I needed the skills to tackle these problems I were interested in. So it's kind of a feedback loop, basically. You, Basically, what what it's all about is you want to solve a problem, and then in order to solve the problem, you get interested in a certain field, and then you get really good at it, you really dive into it, and that is basically my motivation to do anything nowadays. So basically, I want to solve a problem, and then I look up what do I need to solve the problem. And yeah, that led me to machine learning eventually, and then the book. But um, back then in high school, I never thought about writing a book, honestly, so that was more like a recent um, thing.
0: Yeah, and we'll get back to that. And um, I heard you mention that you did computer science in high school. Is that normal in Germany for high schools to offer computer science?
1: I'm not sure how um, common it is nowadays, but back then it was, we were kind of lucky because um, our school was, um, yeah. I would say in Germany, a pretty popular school. So it was called European School. So it was very um, encouraging in terms of, um, yeah, being cutting edge and things like that. And we had a lot of good sponsors um, back then. So they basically, when I just, I was, I think, in the sixth grade, uh, no, third grade or something. And they just built this new computer science lab, basically uh, a sponsor Donated a lot of money to buy computers, and I think it was more like a recent thing I was just lucky to be there and at the right time at the right moment and yeah
0: Well, that worked out well for you
1: <laughs> Yeah.
0: Okay, so um, as I understand it you did an internship in undergrad So tell us about um, where you went for undergrad and why and then how that internship went and how you came to the United States
1: um, So how this worked out I basically joined um, Heinrich Heine University in Germany And actually the thing was, it was pretty close to my um, hometown. And I, yeah, basically it was convenient to still live with my parents back then. So that's why I chose, uh, one of the reasons why I chose this uh, university. But also they were pretty good at biology and I was uh, um, back then uh, working on uh, problems in developmental genetics. So analyzing genes and um, the relationship to uh, phenotypes in plants. And then there was this new exchange program, so a few professors of mine in Germany, they had uh, studied or they were also professors for a period of time at MSU, at Michigan State University here. And they established this um, nice exchange program. So basically five, uh, they selected five students back then uh, who went to well, who were sent to the US and in uh, return, five American students came to Heinrich Heinrich University. And yeah, the challenge was then I saw this flyer, I can remember, I saw it on the um, wall. Uh, I read about this exchange program and I was really excited. Actually, I was thinking, okay, United States—that sounds like a cool adventure. So um, I want to be part of it. And then I had to—I, yeah—I you know, had to write the application basically. And I was just maybe lucky, maybe my grades back then or my good work in my research. But at some point, they, I was lucky to be selected to be one of the five people uh, who were sent to the U.S. and yeah, I came to Michigan State, It I can remember it was um, 2011, and it was a pretty mild winter. <laughs> so um, yeah, I liked it here, and I thought, okay, an exchange, like uh, two semesters wasn't really enough, I want to stay here a little bit longer, because I really like the United States. It's like, uh, it's a cliche, but it's the land of unlimited opportunities, I would say, still. And it's just like a really good environment here, um, the people I met here so far are really um, the people I want to hang out with. Uh, they We are doing awesome things right now in research, and I also have awesome friends here in computer science, and I think it's just the right environment for me to yeah develop or do awesome things.
0: Great. Well, a couple episodes ago, we had Erin Shelman on, and she was a... Um, bioinformatics PhD. Mm -hmm. So can you explain to us um, the difference between that and computational biology? So what exactly is computational biology and what kind of courses did you take in undergrad for that?
1: Okay, so I would say, um, I mean there's no, it's the same uh, like with uh, data science, I would say there's no real definition of bioinformatics that is really non ambiguous. So, but I, in practice, what what I see and what I would say is that bioinformatics is more about the analysis of um, genes, like um, genomic sequences and clustering of genomic sequences and identifying patterns. And I would say uh, computational biology is uh, maybe a a little bit less about using tools. So I think a lot of bioinformatics folks, they, um, at least when I looked at the coursework, they learn how to use certain tools. And computational biology is a little bit broader. You basically maybe develop tools, I would say. So uh, for example, I uh, developed novel algorithms for protein ligand docking and things like that. And again, so I think bioinformatics is more focused on genomic sequences and um, a computational biologist also does um, the modeling of protein structures. What I'm basically doing is um, modeling three dimensional protein structures and small chemical molecules that I want to dock into this protein structure to solve a particular problem, for example, inhibiting a protein that can cause a certain disease or something like that. Okay, so I'm I'm going
0: to stop you there just so we can all understand. Okay, so there's a a protein structure and there's certain molecules that in a three-dimensional fashion can hook into the protein structure and you're modeling that interaction?
1: Mm-hmm. So one trivial example, but for example, the drug aspirin that prevents like headaches and other pains. That's basically just a chemical molecule um, that docks into a certain protein structure. So a protein structure is basically the product of a gene. So you have basically a DNA in your body, and at some point, you uh, ex- or the cell expresses the um, yeah DNA. It becomes a small subproduct. It's called RNA. And from there, it gets translated into a three-dimensional, or in a, into a strand of amino acids. And these amino acids fold into a protein structure. So you basically have something like globally um, globular shape, or also there are different structures um, or different shapes. And these basically are the little elements in your body that have certain functions. And there's, for example, one pain receptor or something like that. And with a, you have also small signaling molecules in your body. And these basically, if they bind to a certain protein, they cause a certain signal or response. And on our uh, current projects, we are basically trying to prevent a certain signaling pathway from happening. So what we do, we design uh, little equivalent um, molecules that bind better to this protein so that the real signaling molecule in the body can't bind to this protein. And by that, we hope to kind of um, alter the response or signal or prevent the signal even.
0: Okay, great. So, what kind of tools are you using or developing in order to do that?
1: So, yeah, there are um, so, uh, two big uh, projects that are related to that. So, one big problem is really to find which um, yeah, small molecule can bind to this protein. And if you, so it's kind of also related, if you know which um, little molecule binds to this protein, you want to figure out how it binds to this protein. So, you have to imagine that it's a three-dimensional structure. And you want to basically fit it in. And you want to know um, which um, kind of orientation it has, which um, there are like interaction, chemical interactions. You want to know how the two components uh, interact with each other. And I'm developing a new, well, I already developed uh, the new algorithm to basically do this kind of thing. So previously, people uh, had uh, different approaches like uh, using molecular dynamics or empirical Approaches where they basically had a certain simple function and they fit experimental data to, uh, f- uh, they used experimental data to fit a model. And based on that, they computed a certain value. And if the value exceeds a certain threshold, or if basically th- they could predict a kind of affinity. And they used that basically to say whether this uh, molecule binds well to the protein or not. And, yeah, I was um, developing a new uh, approach, basically using graph theory, basically uh, looking at the uh, state of the protein when the ligand binds, how, how uh, rigid or flexible it gets. So the idea is basically when a uh, ligand uh, docks into a protein binding pocket, it kind of um, rigidifies or freezes this um, area of the binding pocket. And basically here the problem was how do we assess um, this degree of, kind of freezing or rigidification. And we used basically graph theory, like counting degrees of freedom and um, comparing different ligand docking poses to each other. And based on that, we designed a scoring function. And that would be one approach, a kind of novel one. And it works pretty well when I uh, benchmarked it against uh, um, previous uh, approaches. They were all on the same scale, so my tool didn't work better than any other tool. But the cool thing is what I measured then like a correlation analysis, that my tool measures a different signal. So the power really comes then if you combine different methods, like uh, ensemble learning. You have different approaches that measure different signals, and if you combine them, you hope to get a even yeah, like stronger uh, signal or a better signal, basically, So like um, asking a ensemble of experts to give you the best prediction and equaling uh, out each other's uh, weaknesses. Okay,
0: so before we get to the ensemble learning, let me make sure I understand what it's doing. So you have a, pro- a known protein and mm-hmm. a known molecule, and mm-hmm. they can fit together with a certain type of rigidity. And mm-hmm. you're predicting how likely it is that they're going to you know, really match together with your mm-hmm. algorithm, but it's, it's a different signal that yours is predicting than some other algorithms have predicted?
1: Uh, yeah, that's kind of correct. So other algorithms, what they do, it's more like an uh, additive sum. What they do is they count interactions between protein and ligand, and they have a different, uh, they have certain, like, um, uh, not cost function, but maybe fitness functions. Basically, they measure the, or they just count the interactions, and each uh, interaction has a certain score, and they basically compute uh, some of these uh, scores in a very, I mean, this is, What is going on under the hood is more complex, but that's just a very simple explanation. And what I'm doing, I'm not counting these interactions. I'm looking at the structure of the protein itself. And um, what I observe is, for example, it's not the number of interactions or um, yeah, it's a certain combination of interactions. Basically, the quality of interactions instead of the quantity. And I can measure this basically um, by looking at the protein structure. For example, three certain interactions at different positions can be more valuable or can have a better binding affinity than four interactions somewhere else if there are redundant interactions that don't rigidify the protein or don't have an impact on the protein structure and yeah this was one project and the other one is um so this is uh, more like um project where you have a ligand and a protein and you want to dock it into each other and the other one is more like a large scale virtual screening where i want to identify the molecule that might be a good um target to this protein so right now that's the whole challenge here is that i have like let's say i've built databases of uh, 50 million molecules and i want to identify molecule that can bind to a certain protein and i'm collaborating with um, experimental biologists who basically want to solve a problem and in this case um, i'm not sure if i'm digressing too much here but they are very interested in this uh, sea lamprey fish and you should google it it looks very creepy Say that again
0: they're interested in what
1: uh, sea lamprey that is a fish sea in lamprey the... okay uh, it looks very creepy, I have to warn you. <laughs> so um, what it does is basically it's uh, right now an invasive, or it came here hundreds of years ago um, to the US. Um It's an invasive species in the Great Lakes, just a couple of miles or hundreds of miles north from here. And um, yeah, it's basically uh, a threat to the fishery. And um, what it basically does, it sucks at other fishes and destroys or, yeah, is a problem for fishery, but also harms other fishes that are native fishes. So it's really a threat to the e- ecology here, and they want to basically get rid of it, or basically just uh, minimize the population of this fish. And in previous approaches, what they did is they released like toxic molecules into the lake um, that kill the small larvae of these fish. But the problem then is um, it can also affect other fishes, or it does affect other fishes. And we wanted to find a more environmentally friendly approach and. So, the fish is a little bit, um, yeah, interesting in the way how they mate and reproduce. So, the male fish, what they do is in certain times of the year, they swim up a little river upstream and they build a nest there. And once the nest is built, they release a pheromone, a small molecule into the water that attracts the female fish to this um, mating site, to the nest. And we thought, okay, if we can uh, prevent the female fish from smelling this pheromone, the female fish wouldn't swim to this mating site, and they won't mate anymore. If that makes sense. <laughs> so That's
0: such an interesting solution.
1: In terms of reprodu- uh, yeah, it sounds maybe cruel for the male fish that they may be lonely a bit, uh, a little bit lonely over there. But I think that is a very, um, yeah, nice way to prevent this, uh, yeah population of sea lamprey to increase in the Great Lakes. And the thing is, pheromones are very species specific. So we think if we have something against this pheromone, it also wouldn't uh, harm or affect other fishes. And then the uh, challenge was basically, I have uh, 50 million molecules, and which are good candidates to be tested because my collaborators, they are experimental biologists, they have fish and they can test these molecules, but they can't test 50 million molecules. They can test maybe 100 molecules. So my challenge here as a data scientist was taking this 50 million, a million molecules and finding let's say one or 200 that they can buy and order and test on the fish in their um, experiments. And yeah, so here I'm using a lot of different tools. So basically the simplest or the yeah, initial idea was basically just building a database, a SQL database with um, all the information that I have, like um, for each molecule, how many, um, Uh, Yeah, hydrogen uh, bond acceptors and donors, I have like um, what chemical groups the molecule has and the distance between certain molecular groups, the weight of the molecule, whether it's uh, commercially available or not, if they can buy it or not, and then the price and all these kind of things. And then I was just doing like a pyramid of um, filtering approaches basically trying to find relative, uh, uh, like relevant molecules. And um, what my boss basically did is, she modeled this uh, protein structure of this receptor, so we knew approximately how the protein looks like. And how and by the, the
0: receptor, you mean the scent receptor in the female fish?
1: Exactly. It was uh, luckily very similar to a human um, receptor. So yeah. we had the structure of the human receptor, and we con- could model the fish uh, equivalent. And then we could also find out, uh, or we could predict with a certain degree of certainty, how the small um, real pheromone could bind to this protein. And from there we had certain information uh, that, for example, two certain atoms are very important for this um, process of binding. And then I was just um, looking in my database, okay, uh, what are the molecules that have these two atoms in a certain distance to each other? So I was looking at 3D structures there, about 50 million uh, molecules, basically. And I brought my Python tools, uh, optimized a little with a Cython, to do basically a quick uh, screening of these molecules to filter out the relevant ones. And the whole challenge in this project is also that it is very time time sensitive. So my collaborators they can only test the. molecules, I think it is uh, April, May. So that's the time basically when the fish are ready to mate. So they want to have basically they have a very small time window. And then you have also in academia, your grant application, which is usually accepted around the time of December, January. So you have a very little time to do the whole thing. So you want to be very efficient with that. And um, yeah, basically, I have then these uh, this database. I look for three dimensional structures. And then I have uh, more, uh, yeah, kind of layers in terms of filtering. Where I basically overlay the molecules to the target uh, molecule, look for similarities, how well they overlay, how many function groups um, are in common. In but it's all in 3D. And the whole challenge is uh, also, I have 50 million molecules, and they all have rotatable bonds. They can move in space and. Uh, the atoms in the structure can move relative to each other. And then the uh, challenge is basically, you can't just take a rigid structure and compare it to the rigid template structure. You really have to model the flexibility of the molecules. So you have to move them around and stuff like that. And then it becomes really like a computational, it's a really a computational explosion there that you have um, yeah, maybe thousand different um, poses of each molecule that you overlay to 1000 different poses of the target, and then times fifty million, And there you basically develop your, yeah tools to do this efficiently. So and how long I, does
0: it take to analyze one molecule one, from all its different forms and, forms and shapes. shapes?
1: So I can generate the different forms and that is just maybe a matter of 20 seconds or something. But then you have it times 15 million. And a com- uh, comparison, I can right now with my tools, I just optimized them a couple of weeks ago. I can overlay like five uh, molecules per second. But still, it's a very uh, challenging task. So I'm using, uh, I'm lucky that I have access to our supercomputer here. And I have, right now, approximately 2,500 jobs running there, like uh, overlaying them. So the thing is, I could just run a big job with all the molecules in the uh, queue. But then it would take maybe a month or something. And they need the results very soon, in approximately two weeks. So I just have to split it up into smaller chunks chunks and analyze them separately, basically parallelizing the whole thing and then basically assembling the results again. And then the thing is also, you have to worry about multiprocessing versus multi-threading, and uh, how do you make efficient use of your hardware, basically the hard drive, you don't want to have everything sitting on the same hard drive because then the read and write access would be very slow. And yeah, this is also maybe uh, how data science uh, comes in the definition. So you also, as a data scientist, have to worry maybe sometimes about um, computer hardware, not only the software, not only the algorithms and tools, but also, how do you make use of your system that you have? And how do you get the results in time? And then yeah, one seems also, like That's,
0: that's considered, considered part, considered of, part more of more data more. engineering part of data yeah. science.
1: Yeah. But um, it's still uh, sometimes yeah uh, necessary, I would say. So basically, at least knowing the basics. And then also the communication skills. So what was a real challenge is once I have the molecules, I, I use a lot of machine learning also in this project where I basically um, predict which functional groups are important. So I make predictions, hand them over to my collaborators, and they test them in the lab basically, and I get a kind of score or how well does it inhibit the, the receptor. They basically use a technique called electro uh, assays. So what they do is it sounds a little bit cruel, and they put um, probes into the brain of the fish and they measure a response towards um, the pheromone and if they add the compound, what they want to see, that there is no response anymore. So basically you can compute a score that gives you an idea how well it inhibits the pheromone, um, the smelling of the pheromone. And based on this response, I can basically predict which functional groups are important if I have a lot of molecules that were tested. And I can basically use machine learning to say, okay. in nine of the cases, um, I needed a oxygen group here, but it's also important to combine it with a methyl group at the other end or something like that. And the challenge here was I built my little models there, but also you had to communicate the results to your collaborators who are not necessarily machine learning people. So I had to basically basic break, uh, break it down into simpler terms or maybe using even simpler models. In the end, I just um, to explain to them the approach, I used a simple decision trees that, that I Basically, spread the molecules by functional groups, and um, could basically say, okay, um, if the molecule has oxygen oxygen group at this position, a methyl group at the other position, and so forth, then it's a very good inhibitor. And I also, yeah, used uh, for the real uh, results and more complicated models like on uh, neural networks and uh, random forest, uh, random forest not necessary co- uh, complex, but um, basically the decision tree was very important to get the idea across, to explain it to your collaborators, and I think communication skills are also really important in such a project where you have to communicate this to also people who um, are not necessarily in the field.
0: Yeah, definitely. definitely. And so so if if your model model can predict predict how well these uh, molecules will work, could you also theoretically come up with a molecule that isn't commercially available and maybe it turns out, for instance, in a medical application that it could really solve a major problem and so it's worth the pharmaceutical industry to actually create that molecule that hadn't existed until now?
1: So what we've done now, uh, yeah, you certainly could. So how we did this now is I, in the first filtering step I only selected commercially available compounds because that allowed us to, we have a certain budget, let's say fifty thousand uh, mm-hmm. for one season. So we don't want to exceed, or we can't um, exceed this budget. And uh, synthesized, or especially synth- synthesized molecules are really expensive. So we didn't wanted to waste money on something where we didn't know that it was promising yet. But then uh, what we did is basically we predicted um, certain molecules, and certain molecules worked. And by the way, we found one. We found one that hit the. Response by ninety percent, which was really cool. And okay. based on this, and based on this molecule, we well, what they did is basically we they modified certain um, chemical groups and made a bunch of similar compounds, but that they, they were differing in certain positions. So yeah, we synthesized uh, molecules later on after we had a good um, promising candidate. And based on this candidate, based on this candidate, we designed new structures.
0: That's really interesting. Okay. Well, I want to get to your book before too long. So that's, this discussion has been really interesting, but now I want to talk about this book you wrote. And before I get into it, how did you write a book while you're in grad school? What is your schedule like? And and what made you come up with the idea to write this book?
1: So yeah, that was, uh, that is a very good question. So honestly, I didn't want to write this book in the first place. So the publisher contacted me or there were some publishers, I think based on my blogs or something like that, that they asked me about a machine learning book.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: I said, okay, I don't have that much time, and it's a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. I maybe shouldn't write this book. I should maybe focus more on my research. And um, yeah, I talked to a lot of friends, and everyone actually encouraged me to write a book, because they they said, hey, you can explain machine learning com- concepts so well, and a lot of people would benefit from a book written by you. So you should definitely do that and at some point I said okay if everyone tells me I should do that maybe I should listen <laughs> to my friends for one time and yeah then I basically just started writing but the real challenge was on um, the schedule like you mentioned I mean I'm still in grad school and um, yeah I'm doing eight hours of research a day and then you get home and have to write maybe four hours or something per day because every chapter was due at approximately one Week to ten days per chapter, so wow. it was a pretty tough uh, time. I can remember it was last summer, so there was no time for vacation or, yeah, doing much besides writing and uh, doing research. So, but I'm glad I get, got a lot of uh, useful or nice positive feedback. That I'm glad that it helped so many people to get started in this field, and I think it was worth it uh, eventually. Maybe I won't do this again so soon, but um, yeah. I'm still recovering from all the stress from last summer. But-
0: <laughs> Maybe after you get your PhD, and then you have all that mm-hmm. time, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, so um, I will also say with you guys getting good feedback on this that my husband, Tony, he's a professor, and he was impressed with your book, and it's hard to impress him because he has access to a lot of books, so, well,
1: so good job we, on that, <laughs> you got the Tony's approval. And yeah. Greetings to your husband. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so here's the book, I'm holding it up for those of you watching this on YouTube, it's mm-hmm. called Python Machine Learning by Sebastian Raschka. And it says a uh, subtitle, Unlock Deeper Insights into Machine Learning with This Vital Guide to Cutting-Edge Predictive Analytics. And I'll start in the front. Um, you kind of go over what you're going to talk about in the book. And let's see, the things, type of things that you cover are a quick overview of machine learning and pattern classification and optimization. Um, you do a, a classifier exercise with Scikit-Learn. Uh, data pre-processing, dimensionality reduction, model evaluation, ensemble learning, sentiment analysis, uh, a web app with machine learning, regression analysis, clustering analysis, neural networks for image recognition, paralyzing neural nets with Theana, and um, that's about 400 pages total, so it really covers a lot. Um, So what's your favorite chapter out of there?
1: Um, Maybe I will start with the least favorite one. It was basically the Flask uh, chapter. I just got an email from a person who really liked this Flask chapter. Uh, He wrote that it was really cool to see how these two tools play together so nicely. I mean, like building a predictive model in scikit-learn and then using Flask to share it with the world. And that's your web
0: app chapter, right?
1: mm -hmm. But it was really challenging to write it, I think, because um, having the book is kind of, any book is kind of constrained in a linear concept and I thought uh, explaining a web app that would be more like an interactive exercise, like uh, having a little video here and there. But I was happy that this one worked out. And my favorite chapter would be probably the neural network chapter because um, that's what I'm most excited about these days. Um, I didn't go too much into deep learning. Honestly, uh, one thing an insider info, the book uh, was proposed to be 250 pages. Okay. And I um, yeah, had to do a little bit of, um, yeah, complaining here and there with the publisher to extend it at least to 450 pages. But unfortunately, I didn't get too deep into deep burning, maybe the topic of my next book, hopefully. <laughs> but the, the neural network chapter would be my favorite one, I would say.
0: Okay, great. And also I'll tell the listeners that there is a lot of math in the book. And honestly, when I was an undergrad, if I had gone to a bookstore and picked up a book like this and opened up and seen these scary math equations, I would have put it right back on the shelf.
1: <laughs> now I'm that I've done with, uh, stores now. <laughs> yeah.
0: So um, now I'm a little more confident with my math skills since grad school. But do you think that um, people really need a pretty strong math background before they can
1: use the book? I think Not necessarily if so one secret. uh, I mean how I learn best is really by struggling I'm sorry. I mean, I don't want to discourage anyone but I want to really encourage everyone because uh, I think struggling is very important to make the best use of your time and to Get the best learning experience. So how I learn best is really um, Taking something that looks really challenging and something that I want to learn about and only if I don't understand anything at all, then I would go back and read more, um, yeah, simpler literature to as a preparation for this heavy literature. But I think it's really um, a good learning experience to struggle. That is how your brain basically grows. I and mean, it's the same with exercise. If you are lifting weights and you only lift the small weights, you will never gain or become any stronger. So you really want to challenge yourself to read something that is really just, um, yeah, just write to struggle and to learn something new. You don't want to read simple things that are always repeating themselves, so you don't learn learn anything new. So yeah, I I think I'm I'm hoping that I explained the math uh, pretty well there, and I also have a lot of little um, links to literature to um, yeah dive deeper into certain topics, and maybe a little primer on linear algebra and calculus wouldn't be a bad idea, but honestly, um, I'm working on a series of books at the moment, but at the very uh, at a very slow pace, so um, there were a couple of publishers uh, who asked me to write uh, certain books, but I want to work at my own pace now. It's um, I'm not sure if it will be a self-published book yet, maybe I will hand the manuscript to a publisher at some point, but I'm Actually, uh, also writing a book to prepare people for the heavy math literature, like um, calculus and optimization theory and linear algebra, probability theory, and statistics. And um, I think, yeah, hopefully that will be useful, but it will, or it may take a while until these books are done, but yeah.
0: But I, agree. but I agree, it's definitely worth really diving, diving in, in and, and, and like you said, like lifting heavy weights. Um, now you might want to not want to lift the biggest weight at first, <laughs> but you can pick up uh, a guide to lifting the heavy weights and split it up. So if you're not comfortable with the math, you can still pick up the book um, and do the code and see how it works. And then the nice thing about the math is it really explains behind the scenes of Scikit-Learn, what's really going on in there. Um, so it'd be nice to, to do the... Um, programming, see what's happening, and then go back maybe and understand the math underneath. And like you said, um, you can dive right in. And you don't have to understand it all all at once. You can go back and struggle with it a little bit. So I want to give people a sense of how the book is written. So I wanted to go through a chapter as an example and just kind of cover all the topics. So um, I'm going to talk a lot at this point, but feel free to jump in if you have any comments. um, And then I'll stop and and ask you a few questions along the way. so this, this is a chapter on um, classifiers, machine learning classifiers with Scikit-Learn. And you do get right into Scikit-Learn pretty quickly in the book. And as I understand it, you were, um, you've worked with the Scikit-Learn um, as an open source developer, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I contributed a small little, um, yeah, small little chunks. For example, the voting classifier it was an idea that I uh, implemented for my book, and then I took this um, code, basically, and made it a little bit more um, yeah, sophisticated in terms of edit, uh, additional functionality. That would be, for example, one classifier that I implemented in scikit-learn. And right now, um, I'm also implementing this um, feature region plot, basically, that you can plot your decision regions, and the feature selection algorithms, the sequential feature selection algorithms. Yeah. Oh,
0: that sounds neat. Okay, so this section is called Logistic Regression, Intuition, and Conditional Probabilities. So um, I wanted to read some of it straight out of the book so people could get a sense of how the book sounds. Uh, So this says, logistic regression is a classification model that is very easy to implement but performs very well on linearly separable classes. It is one of the most widely used algorithms for classification in industry. Similar to the perceptron and Adeline, the logistic regression model in this chapter is also a linear model for binary classification that can be extended to multi-class classification via the OVR technique. To explain the idea behind logistic regression as a probabilistic model, let's first introduce the odds ratio, which is the odds in favor of a particular event. The odds ratio can be written as as p over 1 minus p, where p stands for the probability of the positive event. The term positive event does not necessarily mean good, but refers to the event that we want to predict. For example, the probability that a patient has a certain disease. We can think of the positive event as class label y equal one. We can then further define the logit function, which is simply the logarithm of the odds ratio. And then you show the um, math there. Then you show the equation for the, um, let's see, for the conditional probability for class one given feature x which I guess is a, an array or a mm-hmm. um, vector. And then you show the equation which um, looks like W transform X, so there's a okay. little bit of linear algebra in there. Mm-hmm. And then um, you use that to predict the probability that a sample belongs to a certain class using the inverse logic, which is logistic or sigmoid function. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I'll show what the pages look like. So you have some math and you have some code and my notes are stuck on there too, but you can kind of get a sense of how dense the pages are there. But then you go right into the picture, which I like. So you're showing the picture of the, the sigmoid function. So even if somebody didn't understand the math exactly, they could understand that you know the sigmoid goes towards zero for negative infinity, and it's S-shaped, and it goes towards one, towards positive infinity, and it has the intercept where z equals 0 and the sigmoid is 0.5 and you explain how that can be divided up so that if the value is above 0.5 you get one class and below 0.5 you get the other class. Um, So you're converting the output to a binary classifier with the class membership probability and then you also mention how this is valuable because it gives you the probability not just the class so for instance in the field of medicine you can get the probability that the patient has a particular disease. So do you want to talk about any of that and why you chose um, that particular function and how you explained it there?
1: Um, So one little add-on that I just noticed while you were reading this chapter, Mm -hmm. I wrote something about it can be extended to multi-class classification via um, the one versus rest OVR. Mm -hmm. I think later in chapter 13, I also mentioned it was maybe too much for this chapter, the um, softmax softmax function, function which um, can basically naturally scale multi-class problem, uh, probabilities to, uh, so that they sum up to one, which is one uh, other approach to use logistic regression for multi-class problems. It's called softmax regression or multinomial uh, logistic regression then. And yeah, I think the um, logistic regression uh, model is um, very important in terms of um, applications. It's still very widely used. It's usually the model that I use first. So if I have new data set, I don't know much about the data set, and I want to build a predictive model, I usually uh, start with a logistic regression as a benchmark, basically, um, to see maybe this is already uh, good enough to separate the classes. It's very um, computation, very efficient. You can learn it by uh, um, stochastic gradient descent, gradient descent, mini batch learning. So it's very um, there are many different approaches to basically uh, fit this model and um, you can use it with a uh, streaming data then. That's another advantage. If I have, let's say, uh, gigabytes of data, I can't fit it into memory, you can use stochastic gradient descent, learn sample by sample basically to fit this model. Uh, yeah, the nice thing is you have a convex cost function that you can compute the derivative to optimize this, finding the global minimum, which is also very cool. And um, you have the probabilities that can be interpreted, which is another nice feature. But also from a learning um, perspective, it's, I think, a very valuable model because it also helps you maybe to understand how multilayer perceptrons work. Um, Because you can basically picture each multilayer perceptron, uh, each neuron in the multilayer perceptron as a logistic um, regression unit if you use the sigmoid function and um, the logistic sigmoid because there's also the hyperbolic tangent which is also one other kind of sigmoid function Um, but the nice thing then okay you have to then cut off the threshold function where you say in the end if it exceeds a certain threshold it's class one otherwise class zero but the activation function this logistic sigmoid is the is also commonly used in neural networks so i think it's also very useful to learn about logistic regression first before you learn about neural networks and another nice feature is um, that you can add very easily, like um, penalt- penalties against complexity, to avoid overfitting. So you can use um, L2 uh, penalties; it's a regularization term. That um, basically, if you have a cost function and your parameters are getting too large, and you may uh, have a risk of really heavily overfitting your train data, you add a certain factor as a as a factor of the weights to shrink your yeah basically the um, what it does it's adding a term to the cost function so a, a penalty a bias to uh, decrease the variance of your model and then there's another approach it's called l1 uh, regularization which can also be very useful for feature selection so the nice thing about logistic regressions it supports uh, it's basically an embedded uh, feature selection algorithm and embedded feature selection means that the feature selection occurs um, during the training of your model. So basically you can use this lasso to uh, select feature or to remove features that are not important. And there are a lot of, a lot of different um, nice things about logistic regression. And maybe also one important thing is that it's just simple and easy to explain to collaborators and very powerful. And I think it was March Madness this um, competit- uh, this Yeah, basketball uh, competition that happens in March. Uh Um, And people uh, are doing predictions on this. And there's a competition to predict, basically, who wins March Madness, which team. And I think it was last year, um, two professors uh, were who won the um, March Madness competition, basically, predicting which team will win this contest, uh, used logistic regression. So it can be a lot
0: of applications. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I agree, it's a good uh, first one to really dive into um, for for understanding the math behind how it works. Um, So let me go through the rest of the chapter. You have um, learning the weights of the logistic cost function, and you go into the sum of square error cost function and minimizing that to get the weights for the model. Um, You say also it's easier to maximize the natural log, so you go into that. And then I'm going to skip ahead to page 62. So here, um, you first train the model in scikit-learn. So it's only about eight lines of code. So that's the kind of thing where people can definitely use scikit-learn before they fully understand the math. But when you write eight lines of code and it magically outputs something, it's good to understand what's going on behind the scenes.
1: And honestly, I think it's not that much more if you really implement it from scratch. Um, I didn't include the code in the book because I hit the page limit, but oh. I added it later to my GitHub repository um, as a GitHub repository where I have the code posted. Basically, I edited it as a like a bonus IPython uh, notebook. It's also just maybe 20 to 30 lines. It's very simple. You can basically just take the line implementation from the book and change the cost function, and then you're good to go. It's um, yeah, very easy. Okay, actually. so
0: I'll link to that too in the show notes. And then you have a picture here that's showing the the separation of the different classes for the IRIS data set. Mm -hmm. And um, you talk about predicting the probability of a specific example, sample, um, to see which class it will fall into. And then you go into more math and talk about um, overfitting and underfitting and regularization and... um, Here's another thing that I liked on page 66 for someone that's not understanding the math right away. You do have pictures explaining underfitting, overfitting, and a good fit, um, which I think are good pictures. Um, And then you talk about um, regularization parameters and uh, on page 68 you have the rest of the code there, which is maybe another 14 lines to to do a plot um, and to look at the, the different weights there. Um, And then you refer to another book, like you said. So if somebody did want to know more, they can Mm -hmm. refer to this other book that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So I think it is a good overview and it's it's pretty fast for somebody that doesn't have the math background, but it gives you enough information to then know what to look up if you want to know more.
1: I'm glad to hear that it sounds useful overall. Yeah, definitely.
0: Okay, so is there anything else that you wanted to highlight from the book in particular? Um, We're going to come back later for the learning activity and talk a little bit about um, model evaluation. But is there anything else you wanted to highlight that new learners might want to know about this book, Python Machine Learning?
1: Um, Yeah, so maybe uh, I wanted to um, explain a little bit how I wrote this book in terms of how much code I included versus the math. Mm -hmm. And I tried really to um, find the right balance between implementing algorithms from scratch. And this is, I think, a very, very important point because I think it's really valuable if you read a machine learning literature to just use your favorite programming language, maybe Python, maybe R, to implement the ideas and see if you um, get the results that you expect. So in the beginning, what helped me a lot was using existing packages like Carrot and R or um, scikit-learn in Python. But without looking at the code there, I looked at the literature, implemented the algorithms, and then I just uh, ran my code, run, ran their code, and see if I get the right results. And if I didn't, I went back to my code and saw uh, tried to find out what went wrong. But I think it's a very, very valuable learning experience to just implement it yourself. I mean, in practice, you probably want to use existing packages if you want to solve a real world problem because they were yeah, tested by a lot of people, battle tested basically, and they have a lot of unit tests and a lot of people uh, use the tools before. So it's, I would say more reliable, but for your learning experiment uh, experience, you maybe want to just implement it yourself and see if you um, underst- understand the math and if you can translate the math to code because it really can highlight um, maybe um, things that you didn't understand before, so that you want to go back and read more about that. And in the book, uh, in, the first, in the second chapter, I think, I implemented uh, the Perceptron and the Aniline from scratch, Later on, I didn't implement everything from scratch anymore because the page limits, I mean, it's already uh, 450 pages. And if I would have implemented everything, I think it would be 1,400 pages. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think I uh, implemented the neural network at the end because um, that I think is also very useful uh, thing to know how to implement a a simple neural network. First of all, it's not in scikit-learn yet. As far as I know, they worked on a multi-layer perceptron, but I think it's not finished yet. And secondly, I think neural, if you want to go into deep learning, it's a lot more manual than using an F, uh, off-the-shelf classifier like an SVM or logistic regression. Often you want to build your neural network specific, specifically for a certain problem, like the number of units in your network, which activation functions. And then it's really good to know how to implement a very simple neural network. And then in practice, you can maybe use um, Keras. Uh, it's a nice library that wraps uh, TensorFlow and Ciano, which are two libraries. I would say we can call them NumPy on steroids, uh, basically Mm -hmm. um, linear algebra uh, libraries for um, deep learning where they use or you can utilize uh, GPUs. You write symbolic math basically that is compiled to code to make it more efficient. It's actually very similar and you can solve the similar problem also in NumPy, but NumPy is maybe not so efficient for solving bigger problems. But it's NumPy, it's, I think it's a very good tool to learn how to implement a neural network for the first time and then you can take this code and implement it maybe in Theano or TensorFlow.
0: Yeah. yeah, and I can agree with wanting to um, do it yourself, at least for the, the simple versions of these algorithms. Um, it is very valuable to do it yourself. I did that in a machine learning class um, when I was in a master's program and it was really worthwhile because now I feel like, oh I get it, I really understand what's going on there. I, I, we, we did the math and we did the code and then now when I use a package I actually understand what's happening. So it's defi- I agree with you. That's really valuable. So that was a good suggestion for people learning data science in general. Do you have any suggestions for people maybe early in their academic careers now, like in undergrad, who want to do data science in a scientific field like computational biology?
1: So um, I'm actually not that familiar with uh, data science curricula. I know that a lot of universities started offering data science um, curricula, but I think it is not really necessary to take a a specific data science master course to become a data scientist. I think um, data scientists or the data scientists that are out there in the field right now are people who studied something differently, where they needed to use certain tools that a data scientist typically uses. For example, I know uh, from companies that they are highly interested in um, people from scientific uh, fields like astrophysics, physics, computational biology, because the reason is as a data scientist you also want to be a problem solver. So you basically have a problem and that hasn't been solved before maybe. and people uh, also want to think about how to tackle novel problems and I think in a lot of data science curricula based on what I've seen online it's more like they teach you how to use tools to solve certain like homework problems like problems that have been solved before and I think it's not really the real life situation when you uh, basically want to solve something new you want to come up with your ideas and you don't don't have any like benchmark, what is the right way to approach this problem. So basically independent thinking. And I think it's very valuable to get um, involved in research early on. Instead of just focusing on learning tools, I'm more like a person who wants to solve a problem. And it's more about the idea or the approach how to solve this problem. And then I look for the tools that are necessary or that can help me with this. For example, one example is Blaze. I, um, when I was working on my screening things, I uh, realized, OK, Pandas is not sufficient here, because I even the report files are like 10 gigabytes. Uh, just a report file, where I just want to check if everything went correctly. So I use Blaze, which is a wrapper around Pandas that allows you to stream your data from your hard drive, basically reading not everything into memory, but iteratively from your hard drive. And I just learned about this tool because I needed it at the time, and I think it. I knew what I, what problem I wanted to solve, like, for example, I wanted to um, compute how well the scores are correlated to some other scores, and in order to do that, I looked up, okay, which tool can I use to um, stream the data so that I don't have to load it into memory. So basically, this, um, I'm not sure if I can call it a backwards approach, but I think the idea is always more important than the tools, because the tools are changing. And I also want, don't want to um, get too distracted by technical details, because there are always new shiny tools coming out every day. And I think it's sometimes just more valuable to know what you, uh, to use what you know and to get the analysis done if it solves your problem. And then if you have extra time, you can look for the new shiny tool. Maybe you can make it better or you can do it more quickly. But I think it shouldn't be the uh, priority to just spend time learning um, new shiny tools.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with you. That's, um, it's important to get comfortable with something specific, and then you can always add on to that. And you, as a data scientist, you're going to be adding on forever, as we've heard from other um, podcast interviews, and just, um, you know, things you come across online. Like you said, the tools are always changing. We're going to be forever learning. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely a data scientist. Data science career is definitely going to be a problem-solving okay. career. So I agree with you on that. All right, well, um, I think that's a good wrap-up point for the interview. So how can people find you online, Sebastian?
1: Um, I think I'm pretty much everywhere nowadays. So I have a GitHub account, uh, a Twitter account, and I'm active on Quora. So my Twitter account and um, GitHub account are the same, uh, the same, like, a short name, it's R-A-S-B-T. Um, yeah, the problem is uh, I wanted to use something different for Twitter, but it was basically my first social network. But I needed something short because I'm uh, a very talkative person and I write a lot. So I wanted to something wanted to some have something short that I can uh, basically have a lot of characters left for messages. Mm-hmm. And then I just reused this uh, short name on other other platforms like GitHub. So it's basically all the same. Um, yeah.
0: So that's RASBT. R-A-S-B-T.
1: Mm-hmm. All
0: right. It's Great. And I will link uh, to that in the show notes as well
1: it's just the first two letters of my first uh, last name and the three letters or well, some random three letters from my last name uh, first name sorry
0: <laughs> yeah. well that works all right well um i'm sure this is a really valuable interview especially for people looking to go on the scientific side of data science so thank you so much for talking to me today sebastian
1: yeah it was a pleasure i hope um yeah i could um say something useful here <laughs> it's a sunday um uh yeah it's uh Maybe I didn't get that much sleep yesterday, but I thought I'd do this interview today and I hope I could um, tell you something useful and to the data science community out there. And um, yeah, happy learning, I would say.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's a good thing. Happy learning, everybody. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye. So if that got you interested in Sebastian's book, you can find a link to purchase it in the episode notes. There's also a link there for a GitHub repository that goes along with the book, which, as Sebastian mentioned, actually extends beyond the book in some ways. It's really worth checking out. So go to becomingadatascientist.com and look for Episode 8, Sebastian Roshka, to find the show notes. Then, once you read the Python Machine Learning book, you can post your review for it on my data science learning directory, datasciguide.com. Now let's talk about the Data Science Learning Club activity. In recent activities we learned about classification, in the form of naive Bayes classifier, clustering using k-means, and regression, at least simple linear regression. Before we get too much further along in the machine learning activities, I think it's important for us to make sure we understand how good our models were. For that, we need evaluation metrics. There are all kinds of evaluation metrics we can use. The type you use depends on the type of model you're applying. I'll post a bunch of links and references in the learning club activity so we can learn all about it. And uh, I'll also mention some common approaches. And the assignment is to go back to one of the models you built and use a new evaluation metric that you haven't used before, um, or at least you didn't use in your learning club activity, and write about how it helped you understand how good your model performed. All right, so you heard about what our uh, assignment is going to be this time for the Data Science Learning Club, and I have Sebastian Raschka back here with me to talk about um, some information in his book that can help with your task this week. So he has a whole chapter, it's chapter six in his book, about model evaluation. It covers things like the bias-variance trade-off, scikit-learn, learning curve function, uh, validation curves, grid search, precision, recall, F1 score, confusion matrix, um, the rock curve and area under the curve performance measures, um, how you can shift the decision threshold of a classifier um, to get the different trade-offs, and that's how you build a rock rock curve. And um, what he's gonna talk to us about that I think would be very useful for your activity this week is K-fold cross-validation. So Sebastian, can you tell us what that is and how it's covered in your book?
1: Okay, so maybe I should start uh, with the easiest way of um, evaluating a model. So basically, let's imagine we have a classic predictive model, we have a training set, and we want to build a predictive model. So the first thing you want to do if you have a data set is to split it into two halves, a training set and a test set. And uh, it's not literally like 50, 50%. It really depends on how much, um, how large your data set is. Typically you use something between um, a ratio of 60 to 40, 50 to 50, or 70 to 30. And that is really completely fine if you take the training set and you train a model just on this training set. And then if you want to get an idea how, it well, how well it performs on a real world problem, here you think about the des- test set as new data that uh, your classifier hasn't seen before basically simulate new data real-world data and then you get basically a number a score if you use accuracy you get a certain accuracy and then you get an idea how well your model performs that is a fine approach if you just train your model on the uh, training set without tweaking it or re-evaluating it so the, the problem is if we have only one training set and a test data set and we build a model and tune its parameters for example we a model and then we see okay it didn't perform so well on the test data we take uh or we change some parameters maybe um in uh logistic regression the penalty the um, l2 penalty for example or regularization strings but it can be anything it can be in a decision tree the depth of the tree or it can be in a random forest the number of trees but in any case if we are not satisfied with our performance and we go back and reuse our training set to uh train a new model and then use the same test set to evaluate our model, our test data is basically kind of leaking uh, because we use the same test set twice, which means we got a number and then we try to optimize this number using the training set, but then we also try to optimize the number on the test set. So our test set kind of becomes training data as well an indirect way of training data, I would say. So a better approach would be to split this um, data set, the initial data set, into three parts. So a training set, a validation set, and a test set. And then we can use the training set as before to train our model. And we can use the validation set to evaluate our model. And if we're not happy, we can go back and tune our um, algorithm and evaluate it on the uh, validation set again and again and again. And then once we are happy, then we can use the final test set that we never touched before and evaluate the real or estimate the real-world performance so that we get an kind of unbiased estimate. So it's very really important that we don't touch the test data until the very end.
0: So is and the danger there that you would be overfitting to the test data if you didn't have a yeah. separate validation set?
1: Mm-hmm. So the, the thing is, if you use the training data to train your model and you re-evaluate every time on the test data, you are kind of trying to maximize the score on the test data, and then you kind of run into the danger that you are fitting your model kind of uh, indirectly to the test data as well. And if you get any new data and it is any different from the test data, your model may not perform as well anymore because you overfitted training and maybe also the test data before.
0: So it's like in the problem when you can use data from the future because you're seeing data that um, should be used in the purest sense to test your data, but you're using it as an input, so it's no longer a pure test.
1: Yeah, it's not uh, unbiased anymore, I would right. say. So you have uh, introduced a bias and then uh, yeah, your final performance may not reflect the performance that your model truly has on the real world problem. And one way to take this idea further is k-fold cross-validation. So what you do here is, um, for example, you split again your uh, initial data set into a training and a test data set. But uh, you don't split your training uh, Subset further into validation and training set, but you use the scaffold uh, cross-validation approach. You take the whole training chunk and uh, split it into folds. If you use, for example, five folds, five-fold cross-validation, you split. You uh, have non-overlapping parts. Five non-overlapping parts from your training data, like chunks. You have one, two, three, five chunks, and you have then also five folds, basically. You can imagine five columns and five rows. And in each row, the test column, you split basically apart from your training set, another, let's say, test or validation set, a small subchunk. And in each uh, row, this is a different one. And the idea is basically to train your model on uh, four out of five parts of this training set in one it- iteration and test it on the fifth holdout fold. And then you do this uh, five times, basically, if you have five-fold cross-validation. And by that, uh, you kind of ensure that you use uh, different um, holdouts uh, set, basically, or a test set or subset in each iteration, which can, which can help you to uh, avoid overfitting. Because the problem is also, if you use only one training and validation set, and you train your model uh, on the training set and evaluate it multiple times on the validation set, you run more into the risk of overfitting to the validation set. At, As well, so this way you are more like getting a more unbiased um, estimate of your performance before you later on feed your model to the final test set to get the real unbiased or almost unbiased uh, test estimate. So that's basically just an improvement. It's computationally more expensive to do this than just training and hold out, but I think it's almost always worth it because that's the way you can just build a better, more accurate uh, model that uh, generalizes well or better to new unseen data that's what you typically want
0: and is that the benefit that it generalizes well because it seems like there might be a downside to using just small pieces of the data for training
1: yeah so one problem is really that you may be limited by the number of um, samples in your training set so if you have a large training set or data set uh, initial data set that's usually not a problem but then if you have a smaller data set yeah you throw away a lot of data right so you allocate a lot of data to be validation data instead of using this data to train your model. And um, that can be a problem, but then you can also decrease the size of the validation part. You can basically say instead of um, fivefold, you can say 20-fold, or there's also one extreme case, it's called leave one out um, cross-validation, where only one sample becomes the sub- uh, test data set and the rest uh, of the samples is the training set. And yeah, you can definitely vary the ratio, but I think it's almost always worth it to do it uh, one way or the other, because you really want to get a good uh, model that generalizes well, and I think it's worth it um, to use cross-validation in any case. And then also, once you determined uh, your optimal parameters, you got your optimal model, so via cross-validation, you can use the whole training set to um, retrain your model, and then evaluate it on the test set. And once you get this final performance estimate, let's say you want to report it in your research paper or just for yourself want to have an idea how well it performs in the real world data, no one stops you from using the whole data set in the end, training and test data to fit your model because you know how well it performs. No, just use all the data to fit your model and then use this model because you don't need to revaluate it anymore. So to give it basically more information.
0: Okay, great. That's a good point. Okay, well, thank you for helping us with our learning activity this week, and um, if anybody has your book, um, I'll talk about it ahead of time so people can get the book during the two weeks of the learning activity and hopefully refer to your Chapter 6 for all the different um, model evaluation uh, techniques and concepts. So, thank you so much, Sebastian.
1: Yeah, you're welcome, and happy learning again.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Becoming a Data Scientist podcast. I hope you learned a lot. And thank you to DataCamp for sponsoring our Data Science Learning Club. If you go to becomingadatascientist.com slash learning club, you can sign up and participate in these activities. It doesn't matter when you start, even if you're listening to this podcast months later, you'll still find really good resources and help. And also you could find a forum called the DataCamp discount link where Datacamp has offered for your first months of subscription to be only $9 instead of $25. So go there and get the coupon and check out Datacamp's great content. Our audience has been growing quickly, but iTunes says there still aren't enough reviews to show a star rating. So please review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast, YouTube, or however you're listening to or watching it, because it really helps others find the show. And I love getting the feedback. If you want to get in touch, you can find me on Twitter at becomingdatasi. Thanks for listening.